You are listening to Radio I, your source for printed news and information. This service is intended for listeners who are blind, visually impaired, or have other disabilities that prevent them from reading. All materials are read as written and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of Radio I. For further information about this service, please call 859-422-6390 or visit our website at www.radioi.org. That's www.radioeye.org. Morning and happy President's Day to everybody. And welcome to the reading of the Courier-Journal for this Monday, February 20th, which is brought to our Louisville listeners via Louisville Public Media. And as you know, Radio I is a reading service intended for people who are blind or have other disabilities that make it difficult to read printed material. Your reader for today is Rod Brotherton. Let's look at the forecast. A few showers are possible this morning, but we'll move quickly out of here into the afternoon. Temperatures stay mild and make it into the 60s. Mild weather and rain chances continue through Thursday Tuesday afternoon looks mainly dry before soaking rain and a possibility of some thunder pushes the lead into Wednesday morning, where the highs reach the 70s Wednesday and Thursday. But today, showers are possible early, high 61, low 46. Tuesday, high 63, low 51, times of clouds and sun. Wednesday, high 74, low 61, rain and some thunder. Thursday, high 74, windy and warm, but then we drop in temperatures because Friday has a high of 51 and a low of 40, partly sunny and cooler. Saturday, there is rain possible, high 62, low 43. Looking at the almanac, yesterday's high and low, 60 and 41, compared with a normal of 49 and 32. The record high was 78 in 2018. The record low, minus 3 in 2015. Precipitation for the last 24 hours through 4 p.m. Sunday, nothing. Month to date, 2.12, normal 2.17. So far this year, we've had 7.48 compared with a normal of 5.56. For the sun and the moon, sun rose this morning at 727. It'll set at 626. The moon came up at 802 this morning. It will set at 706 tonight. And our weather history, heavy snow hit the Midwest on February 20th, 1898. Racine, Wisconsin received 30 inches of snow. (laughs) Milwaukee had drifts as high as 15 feet. Now let's look at the front page. Lead story tied to Senate Bill 115, Metro's drag scene at risk. Louisville. Home to three of the country's best drag brunch locations would be virtually devoid of drag shows under the legislation proposed in the Kentucky legislature. Senate Bill 115, sponsored by Oldham County Republican Senator Lindsey Tixner, would create new regulations for adult businesses, including spots that offer drag performances. Under the measure, drag shows would be banned within 1,000 feet of a variety of things, including people's homes, places of worship, and walking trails. None of Louisville's nationally recognized drag brunches would be able to continue without facing legal troubles if the measure passes, a Courier-Journal interview found. 
CC's Kitchen, which held Louisville's Pack in Yelp's 2022 Drag Brunch Power Ranking at a number nine, would not be able to operate because it's too close to an apartment complex and a public library. The Hub Louisville, a Frankfurt Avenue establishment that grabbed the number 12 spot, would also be too close to people's homes to be legal. And Les Moux, which was number 14, is within a thousand feet of the Beargrass Creek walking trail. Several other establishments would be barred from offering drag shows. Playdance Bar would no longer be able to offer its self-described sensational performances because it's within 1,000 feet of a public park. An upcoming drag show at the Sports and Social Club on 4th Street Live would need to be canceled because the venue is too close to some downtown apartments. The House Lodge in Old Louisville is too close to a church. Any drag queen story times offered at local libraries would be canceled because the bill says any adult-oriented ventures cannot be near public libraries. A strip of gay bars on Bardstown Road would not be allowed to offer drag because they're too close to Holmes and Bloom Elementary. This is a shocking reach by Kentucky lawmakers in their continued efforts to completely erase transgender people and LGBTQ Kentuckians. Chris Hartman, the leader of the Fairness Campaign, told the Career Journal. Drag shows have existed in America as popular forms of entertainment for centuries, he continued. Will these draconian anti-drag laws be enforced at every theater in America, at every Halloween party, at every practice where a performer dresses in clothing opposite of their perceived gender? It's an absurd and unenforceable political tack for nothing more than pandering to an extreme voter base. University of Kentucky law professor Josh Douglas tweeted the bill, sure sounds unconstitutional. Basically, the government can't try to shut down a business or regulate its location because it doesn't like it, Douglas explained. There must be a non-speech expression reason for the regulation. Those reasons are called secondary effects, Douglas said, and they need to show the business would lead to some kind of tangible community harm. The bill argues adult-oriented businesses cause a variety of adverse secondary effects, including the weakening of public morality, urban blight, and litter. There has been a small but noticeable push in Kentucky's legislature for measures targeting drag performances this year. House Bill 173 and its twin cent bill, 102, also sponsored by Tickner, would prohibit schools from having drag shows on school grounds. And next, custody fight ramps up in case of mom killing dad. The paternal grandparents of a boy whose father was murdered by his mother in 2017 are still fighting for custody of the child who is now 10 years old and in the second grade. His mother, Tasha Bentley, is serving 55 years in prison and isn't eligible to be scheduled to be released until 2070. She is not eligible for parole until 2037. She pleaded guilty in the 2021 murder case and other offenses for shooting her husband, Gary Bentley, in the back of his head while he lay sleeping. 
The prosecution claimed she was trying to collect on a million-dollar insurance policy. She encouraged him to buy that when it went into effect four days before the murder. The Courier-Journal reported in 2020 that when the boy identified as E.B. in court papers and then seven years old thought his mother was in timeout. His paternal grandfather, Gerald Bentley, said in an interview February 2nd that the boy now knows that his mother is in prison. Bentley said when the boy found out she was trying to arrange for him to visit her at the Kentucky Correctional Institution for Women, he said, Why would I want to visit the person who destroyed my life? Tasha's lawyer did not respond to a request for comment. The Bentleys and Tasha's family have waged a legal tug-of-war over custody of the boy. According to court records, after killing her husband, Tasha took E.B., who had lived his whole life in Henry County, to Bullitt County and handed him over to a woman named Scarlett Etherton, who was initially identified as Tasha's mother and the boy's maternal grandmother. The Bentleys now say she is Tasha's great-aunt. Etherton requested an emergency custody order, and in July 2018, Bullitt family judge Elsie Spainauer awarded permanent custody of E.B. to Etherton, saying later that neither the Bentleys nor the lawyer had shown up for a hearing that they had been given notice to attend. But in a motion filed January 30th, and to be tendered to the court Monday, the couple and attorney Lewis Winter said that's not true. They were told about the hearing, and they were, are asking that the custody order be set aside. The Bentleys say they have been treated unfairly in Bullitt because until December, Etherton was a deputy court clerk there. She used her influence, Gerald Bentley said in an interview. We were at our wit's end. Etherton's attorney, Tammy Baker, did not respond to a request for comment. Louisville family law attorney Jason Bowman said the case illustrates a flaw in Kentucky's custody law. It does not specify where custody disputes should be litigated. That, in turn, can cause a race to the courthouse that a party thinks will be more favorable to him or her, he said. He also said that Spainauer should have been recused and herself she could have recused herself because both she and Etherton had the same employer, the court system, and the judge's impartiality could reasonably be questioned. Spainauer granted the Bentley's visitation with E.B. every other weekend during the school year and every other week during the summer. But they said they deserve sole custody, not the murderer's mother, as they call Etherton in a pleading, in court papers, the Bentleys say that Spainauer's custody ruling allowed a murderer's mother to handpick who was going to have custody of a murderer's minor child. The Bentleys also say through counsel that Spainauer should vacate another order against the couple because an appointed friend of the court, bullet lawyer James Miller, failed to properly investigate the case before recommending that Etherton retain permanent custody. The FOC did not bother to contact the Bentleys, nor any therapist who had treated E.B., nor any teachers or administrators at his school, their motion says. Miller did not respond to a request for comment. The Bentleys also alleged that Etherton took E.B. out of therapy and talked to him about the crime and violation of a court order.
Disturbingly, E.B. has pretended to be his deceased father, Gary Bentley, and stated he wished he could go back in time because he would have taken the gun away from Mommy and told her to shut up, Lisa Bentley said last year in an affidavit. E.B. has been making comments about how he hates both his parents, she added. For the rest of his life, he will have to deal with the unthinkable trauma that comes with knowing his mother shot and murdered his father and that he is left under the primary care and control of the person chosen by Tasha, Lisa Bentley said, insisting the boy still needs therapy. Winner said in court papers that Tasha Bentley's actions have caused unimaginable pain and suffering for members of the Bentley family. Gerald and Lisa are the only grandparents E.B. has left to rely on. The Bentleys believe it is in E.B.'s best interest that he resides in their care. Bentley said his grandson recently remarked that he has no parents now, and the only thing he has left is his dog, Ruger, a yellow lab. Bentley said the dog is still trying to recover from the trauma of Gary Bentley's murder. If he hears gunshots outside, he'll try to tear down the door to get inside, Gerald Bentley said. But he said, E.B. recently said, if Rooker can make it through this, so can I. Finally on the front page, Kentucky Governor Bashir announced Friday he is signing into law House Bill 1, the top priority bill of the legislature's Republican supermajority to cut the state's individual income tax rate from 45 to 4% starting next year. House Bill 1 passed both chambers easily by a nearly straight party line vote with only one Democratic member of the House voting for the bill. In a video tweeted out Friday morning, Bashir said he had concerns about the long-term repercussions of the tax cut on the budget and lamented the legislature wasn't moving to instead cut sales taxes. But he said he was still signing the bill to provide relief from inflation. I have one bill in front of me, Bashir said, one bill about whether or not we can help the people at this time of high inflation. I hope as we can get through this period where, again, groceries cost too much, and that helps this, and, and this helps everybody out of that at least a little bit. Bashir has said over the past few weeks he was keeping an open mind about whether to sign or veto HB1, balancing the amount of help it could give taxpayers versus the challenges that it could create in the future. Shortly before the bill passed out of the legislature, Senate Majority Leader Damon Thayer said he expected Bashir to veto it and shout, I dare him to veto it. Bashir is running for re-election this year in what is expected to be a competitive race. Sean Southard, spokesman for the Republican Party of Kentucky, called Bashir's signing the bill a blatant political move after his veto last year of House Bill 8, which made the tax cuts of HB1 possible. Last year's veto was overridden. He has spent countless hours attacking Republicans for this policy approach and left the members of his own party out to dry on it, Souther said of Bashir. What's the difference between last year and this one? Ha! <laughs> There's election this November. Even if HB1 was vetoed by Bashir, that would have assuredly received an override from Republicans who control 80% of each chamber and were, were unanimous in voting for the bill. 
in voting against HB1, Democratic legislatures had blasted it as a disproportionately helping the wealthy with permanent tax cuts that take advantage of a temporary spike in revenue surpluses, which could jeopardize future budget investments in education. Senate Minority Leader Gerald Neal of Louisville said Democratic members recognize that the decision by the governor to sign HB1 was a difficult one, adding they uh, appreciate the challenges faced by the governor in balancing the needs and desires of various stakeholders in our state and respect his responsibility to make difficult decisions. House Democratic caucus leaders Derek Graham, Sherilyn Stevenson, and Rachel Roberts issued a joint statement noting they and the governor favored sales tax cuts and tax rebate checks last year, saying those are better options and neither would have put a permanent hole in state spending for schools, public safety, and critical health and human services. We are looking forward to working with Governor Bashir in his second term to restore better balance to our tax system, the Democratic leaders added. Jason Bailey the executive director for Progressive Think Tank Kentucky Center for Economic Policy, said HB1 becoming law continues a deeply dangerous course Kentucky must reverse in the future if we are to build a thriving commonwealth. HB1 is harmful legislation that will permanently reduce the resources for our schools, health, infrastructure, and other investments Kentucky needs to be to prosper, Bailey said. And it will give a $5,528 annual tax cut on average to the richest 1%, with most of its tax cuts going to those who least need it. The tax cuts of HB1 stem from last year's HB8, which cut the individual income tax rate from 5 to 4.5% in 2023, and triggers automatic reductions of one-half percent to that rate each year, so long as certain budget conditions are met, until the income tax is eliminated. When Bashir vetoed HB8 last year, he said it was not due to the reductions of the income tax, but rather its expansion of the sales tax on certain services that he argued would hurt small businesses. The governor also noted that he supported cutting the sales tax rate from 6 to 5% last year, which Republican legislatures did not advance. These income tax cuts are part of the dominant GOP supermajority's long-term goal of moving to a system more reliant on taxing consumption, sales taxes, instead of production, income taxes, believing that creates a better environment for economic and population growth. The budget conditions under HB 8 that allow the incremental decrease to the income tax rate include having the Budget Reserve Trust Fund, often called the Rainy Day Fund, at least 10% of tax revenues for the previous fiscal year, while those same receipts must exceed spending by at least the amount of revenue that would be lost by cutting the tax rate a full percentage point. A fiscal note for HB 1 estimated it would reduce state tax revenue by $316 million through just the first half of 2024, with revenue estimated to be $1.2 billion less annually 
from what it would be with a 5% income tax rate. Next, lawmaker pushes for AEDs in school and on sidelines. Representative Ruth Ann Palumbo, Democrat of Lexington, introduced House Bill 331 on Wednesday, a measure which would require AEDs in every middle and high school, as well as every school-sanctioned practice, game, or event. Only 15 states now require automated external defibrillators on site or access to one at athletic venues for practices or games. And here's what to know about Palumbo's version. <laughs> what does the bill do? Well, it proposes an amendment to an already existing Kentucky law that mandates schools have emergency response plans and emergency response drills. The bill would require the AEDs to be in well-marked locations and ensure three employees and all coaches are trained in its use. It also calls for establishing procedures for using AEDs in emergencies, as well as policies for training, maintenance, and communications with local EMS. <laughs> well, why the push for AEDs now? The bill's filing comes a month after Bill's safety, Damar Hamlin, collapsed during a Monday night football game in which quick response and an AED saved his life. Star Eficho, a basketball player at Paul Lawrence Dunbar in Lexington, collapsed during an open, open gym session on April 26, 2017, but care from an AED was delayed. Eficio died, leading his family to file a wrongful death lawsuit. His mother, Peace Eficio, has been outspoken in her calls for AEDs in Kentucky schools. Well, how does an AED save lives? An AED is a portable device that contains a small computer. It has pads that attach to the device, and the pads have electrode sensors that monitor the heart rhythm and detect if a shock is required or not. Sudden cardiac arrest is the leading cause of death in the U.S., and a chance of survival decreases by 10% every minute defibrillation is delayed. A person's chance of survival is 85% if an AED is used within three minutes of a collapse. In 2016, a law passed requiring every public school to provide CPR training to high school students as part of health or physical education classes. It requires that, as a part of the training, students are also made aware of what an AED is and the ease and safety of its use, but does not require a school to have an AED. Well, where does this bill stand? The bill was filed by a Democrat in a House chamber that has an 80-20 Republican majority, so it may have a tough road ahead. It is waiting a committee assignment. Next. Pappy Van Winkle, at the center of an inquiry into Oregon liquor official. Covenant and high-priced Kentucky bourbon is at the center of a blossoming controversy on the other side of the country. The leader of Oregon's liquor regulatory agency resigned earlier this week amid a criminal investigation into allegations he and several other commission officials had used their position to obtain and keep rare bourbons, including Pappy Van Winkle, for personal use instead of allowing them to become available to the public on the West Coast. The scandal, first reported in a series of stories by the Oregonian, 
has led to the resignation of Oregon Liquor and Cannabis Commission Executive Director Steve Marks, who stepped down Monday at the request of Governor Tina Katik, as well as Paul Rosenbaum, Commission Chair, who resigned Thursday at the request of Kotick. Rosenbaum was not named in the criminal investigation, but said he'd been aware of the potential controversy since last September, Oregon's public broadcasting reported. Marks and several other agency members are accused of using their connections at the commission to score rare bourbon bottles that are difficult to find and come with costly price tags. Officials named in the probe told an internal investigator they paid for bourbon and have denied that they resold the bottles, the EP reported. But Oregon Attorney General Ellen Rosenblum announced the criminal investigation had been launched late last week due to potential violations of ethics laws. The officials under investigation are accused of having a number of high-end bourbon bottles sent to a liquor store in Portland, Oregon, near the commission's headquarters, where they would be picked up and kept for personal use or given away as gifts. Marks denied breaking the law but acknowledged getting preferential treatment. A copy of the investigation, obtained and published by the Oregonian, said Marks, who works for the commission for about nine years, confirmed he requested an employee divert warehouse liquor for him to pick up a few items, including Pappy Van Winkle's 23-year-old bourbon, a rare product often sold for four-digit prices on the secondary market. The former liquor commission director, generally stipulated that he has received preferential treatment as an OLCC employee but had acquired the product in a manner that was once accessible by the public, the report said. Other state officials named in the report, six in total, were said to have acknowledged also acquiring pricey bottles of Elmer T. Lee bourbon as well as several Pappy Van Winkle brands. A commission employee who was not a subject of the criminal investigation but had cooperated in an interview, told an investigator that the practice of diverting bottles for use by commission members predated her employment. And Chris Mayton, a commission manager who was among six people named in the review, told an investigator that the practice of agency officials using their position to land rare bottles was widespread. It's a controversy that's engulfed Oregon's Liquor Commission and has made national headlines. And it isn't the first time Pappy Van Winkle may have caused some questionable, at best, ethical decisions. In an infamous case in Kentucky where the bourbon is produced, Pappy Van Winkle is a product of Buffalo Trace based out of Frankfurt. A former distillery worker in 2015 was found to have siphoned bottles from the facility to be sold to other buyers. Ten people were indicted in that case, with the former distillery employee landing a 15-year prison sentence in 2018. Finally, North Korea fires two missiles, artillery, after making threats. North Korea fired two short-range ballistic missiles and artillery shells towards its eastern waters Monday, escalating animosities over U.S.-South Korean military drills that it views as an invasion rehearsal. The weapons firing followed an international intercontinental ballistic missile launch Saturday, and North Korea's threats to take an unprecedented strong response to the drills. A new testing spree also allows North Korea to expand its arsenals amid stall talks with its rivals and eventually use the boosted military capability as leverage to wrest bigger concessions from the United States. 
South Korea detected the two missile launches from a western coastal town just north of Pyongyang, the North Korean capital, on Monday morning. South Korea's Joint Chiefs of Staff said in a statement. It said South Korea has boosted its surveillance posture and maintains a readiness and close coordination with the United States. Japan's defense ministry said both missiles landed in the waters between the Korean Peninsula and Japan. It said Japan condemned the launches as a threat to the peace and safety of Japan and the international society. The Japanese defense ministry said the first missile reached the maximum altitude of 62 miles and flew as far as 250 miles. It said the second missile reached about 30 miles in altitude and flew a distance of 217 miles. The frequency of using the Pacific as our firing range depends upon the U.S. forces' actions character. Kim Yo-yong, the powerful sister of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, said in a statement carried by state media, We are well aware of the movement of U.S. forces' strategic strike means recently getting brisk around the Korean, Korean Peninsula. Calling the United States the worst maniacs, she threatened to take unspecified corresponding counteraction in response to the future moves by the U.S. military. And this concludes readings for the first section of the Courier-Journal for today, President's Day, Monday, January, February 20th. Stay tuned for the Metro section to follow immediately. Your reader has been Rod Brotherton. This is Tom Lewis, the new Executive Director at Radio Eye. I feel thrilled and blessed to join the Radio Eye team, and I'm so excited to be part of what the future holds for us. And I do mean us. As a listener, you are an integral part of the Radio Eye team. What we do, we do for you. We strive to inform you and hopefully enrich your life in the process. So we sincerely want your input. I'd love to hear from you. If you have programming feedback or ideas, please feel free to email me at tom.lewis at radioeye.org or call 859-422-6390. Thanks. Now to continue reading from the Courier-Journal for Monday, February 20th, we turn to the Metro section. Your reader is Vicki Trupiano. We'll read the obituaries first. We read the name, the age, and the location. If you would like further information on any of the obituaries, please call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390 and we'll be glad to read the entire obituary for you. I'll repeat that number at the end of the listings. And please forgive any mispronunciations during my reading. Thank you. Matthew Charles Alford, 46, Louisville. Marcus Edward Babs II, 44, Louisville. Rita G. Barone, 57, Glasgow. Donna June Childress Bowley, 78, Clarksville, Donald Ray Carey, 56, Louisville, James Edgar Coghill, 78, Union Star, Maud Charlotte Lalani Combs, 69, Louisville, Norma Jean Davis, 80, Georgetown, Gary Deering, 76, Hanover, Melvin Clay Doyle, 91, Cedar Springs, Lillian Rose Feather, Fothergill, Two Days, Versailles. James Frazier, 87, Madison. Sharon F. Green, 75, New Albany, Indiana. Wavell 
Gross Senior, 66 Berksville, Dorothy Schultz Hack, 88 Louisville, Carolyn Marie Henry, 83 No Location, Roger Hicks, 60 North Vernon, Darlene Holland, 73 Hazard, Alma Jessup, 94 Berksville, Douglas Wayne Pierce, 56 Louisville, Glenn Dwayne Reedy, 68 Louisville, Gilbert Scribner, 95 Louisville, Todd Lewis Stutzenberger, 60 Louisville, Wanda Vibbert, 73 Berksville, Sherry Whitehead, 46 Hazard, and Herbert Wright, 90 Berksville. Again, if you'd like any further information about the obituaries today, call us during the weekdays at 859-422-6390, and we'll be glad to read the entire item to you. In our first article from the Metro section, Hotel Plans Advancing for Notable Nulu Locale, New Inn Will Capture the Essence of Louisville. And this is from Matthew Glowicki of the Louisville Courier-Journal USA Today Network. The transformation of the historic Joe Lay Antiques property in Nulu is moving forward under new Chicago-based ownership. A Parlum Hotel Group acquired the well-known property in early February for just over $7.12 million. Nulu is a burgeoning destination for arts, makers, distinct retail, and community gatherings that we are thrilled to be a part of, uh, came from Mario Tricoshi, founder and CEO of Aperium Hotel Group, he said in a statement. We look forward to redeveloping the Jolie site into a hotel and food and beverage experience that captures the essence of Louisville. Developer Nick Camposano, a Louisville native, bought the East Market Street landmark in late to 2019 and later announced plans for a boutique hotel at the site. Since then, his New York City-based company, Zio, worked to secure a hotel partner. It was really important that the ultimate hotel brand that was selected felt indigenous to Louisville, but also had the financial backing to complete a project of this magnitude and really invest a tremendous amount into the design and historic preservation and all the food and beverage elements necessary to achieve the results deserved for Mr. Lay, Camposano said. A year of negotiations ultimately led to the decision to sell the property, with Zio remaining an investor and limited partner. Aperium, founded in 2011 by hospitality entrepreneur Mario Tricocci, focuses on bringing a one-of-a-kind hotel experience individualized to each city in which it operates. It will be a one-of-one and hyper-local experience that aims to captivate both visitors and locals alike, Tricocci said. The brand has 10 hotels across the country, including in Denver, Detroit, New Orleans, and Minneapolis, 
with a handful in development. When the Jolay property hit the market in the summer of 2019, it wasn't long until the vision for its next chapter became clear. The famed antique business in the 1890s former school building and two adjacent warehouses operated for more than 50 years before Lay, citing health concerns, closed his doors in early 2020 following a lengthy liquidation process. Camposano said as he was developing the nearby gateway to New Loop Building at 552 East Market Street, he got to know Joe Lay and would pop across the street when he was looking for creative inspiration. Everyone in town knew and knows Joe Lay Antiques Building, whether they know it by name or by its image, he said. Nulu is so lucky to have had him as one of the founding fathers. He bought the Joe Lay properties at 615 and 625 East Market Street in late 2019 for about $4.25 million, Jefferson County Property Valuation Administration records show. He made clear he intended to preserve the red brick former schoolhouse, sharing initial ideas to build a boutique hotel on the property and converting the school building into food, arts, and retail space. In early 2021, Camposano shared an updated $27 million mixed-use plan to renovate the three-story schoolhouse and construct new buildings, creating a boutique hotel with amenities and features, including a restaurant, fitness center, and pool. The age and condition of the building meant a lot of work to determine the feasibility of turning the property into a hotel and shoring up the building for its next phase, he said. We wanted to very delicately assess the situation and think about how we could preserve such an incredible landmark into a forever emblem of Nulu's and Louisville's history, he said. Impressed with Aperium's work on the redevelopment of a historic department store property in Covington, Kentucky, Camposano reached out to the Chicago-based company about the possible opportunity in Louisville. And while negotiations ultimately led Camposano to passing the torch, he said he views the Jolay pro project as the core of a larger development plan for the area, which includes his nearby Nulu Crossing mixed-use development and an expansion and retooling of the neighboring building at 629 East Market Street, among other projects. We are so proud to have led the redevelopment of the Jolay property to get to this point, and we cannot wait to see what Aperium has in store, he said. Business reporter Matthew Glowicki can be reached at mglowicki at career-journal.com or 502-582-4000. Moving on to another interesting article on redevelopment in Louisville. Pumping new life into historic fountain. Restoration Landscaping Set for Cherokee Park Site, and this is from Ray Johnson of the Louisville Courier-Journal. A popular gathering spot at Cherokee Park is getting a facelift. 
Renovations are underway on well-known Hogan's Fountain, which sits what once was called Bonacastle Hill in the Highlands Area Park. Upgrades to the fountain and the surrounding area started last week, and Layla George, President and CEO of the Olmsted Parks Conservancy, said the project should take two or three months to finish up, depending on the weather. It is a historic piece of public art that we're fortunate to have in our park system, she said. George said the planned updates are partly aesthetic and partly practical. The fountain statue will continue to get a cleanup, which hasn't happened in about 10 years, George said. Some small restorations have already taken place, like repairing some plumbing, but it needs other minor touch-ups like new caulking, she added. Other renovations will restore some of the fountain's historical elements to get it closer to its original state. The area surrounding the fountain has been covered with layers of asphalt over time, George said. The Conservancy has taken up the asphalt and pulled out granite cobblestones that originally surrounded the fountain and saved them to reuse. The car lane by the fountain will also be narrowed to help slow down traffic, George said, and the Conservancy plans to put in a median. Landscaping will be added to catch erosion that could bleed down into the trails, she said. The vibe will be more in line with the wooded area that surrounds the fountain, with a focus on adding native species into the landscaping, like small understory trees and native bushes. Hogan's Fountain sits across from a pavilion. Its location was originally chosen for its frequent traffic, with parks engineer Cecil Fraser noting it was a popular location for festive occasions, according to plans for the area's renovation. The fountain was designed and executed in the early 1900s by Louisville artist Enid Yandel for William J. Hogan, a family friend and merchant, according to an article from the Filson Historical Society. Yandel was a pioneering sculptor for both her art and gender, according to the article, and had studied under artists like Frederick McMonies and Auguste Rodin. The fountain is one of the two pricey pieces of art approved for the park at the time, along with the statue by Yandel of Daniel Boone. Figures for the statue, like the image of Pan, Greek god of flocks and herds, were cast in Paris and then shipped to Louisville in 1905. In the early 1900s, the cost of the fountain was $7,000, which would be worth over $200,000 in 2023, according to an inflation calculator. You can reach reporter Ray Johnson at rnjohnson at gannett.com. An interesting article on daylight saving time is in the news today. When is Daylight Saving Time for 2023? It'll be here soon. And this is from Jennifer Sangling of the Louisville Courier-Journal. Kentucky winter is finally breaking and the sun is rising earlier and earlier, which brings one thing immediately to mind. It's 2023, 
So why don't all my clocks auto-change? Yes, the twice annual resetting of your clocks is fast approaching, but you have plenty of time to remember how to do it. Daylight saving time doesn't officially begin until 2 a.m. Sunday, March 12th. At that time, we will jump from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m., source of the familiar saying, spring forward, fall back, about the annual start and end of daylight saving time. Here are some things to know about daylight saving time. Is it still a thing? Yep, it's still around. There is a bill that passed the U.S. Senate in 2022 called the Sunshine Protection Act. The bill would make daylight saving time permanent across the U.S. The measure has not yet been passed by the U.S. House of Representatives, nor has it been signed into law by President Biden. Daylight saving time, what is it? According to timeanddate.com, daylight saving time is the practice of setting the clocks one hour ahead of standard time to make use of more sunlight in the spring, summer, and fall evenings. Daylight saving time, DST, is used to save energy and make better use of daylight. It was first used in 1908 in Thunder Bay, Canada. Daylight saving time became a national standard in 1966 when President Lyndon Johnson signed the Uniform Time Act, which was established as a way to continue to conserve energy. The thinking was, if it's light out longer, that's less time you'll need to use lights in your home. In 2005, Congress amended the daylight saving and extended the April to October period to the dates we know today. March to November. When does daylight saving time start in 2023? Daylight saving time for 2023 will begin at 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, March 12th, for spring forward, and 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, Sunday, November 5th, for fall back. Kentucky's Brief History of Daylight Saving Time Kentucky first observed daylight saving time in 1918 when the Standard Time Act established daylight saving time to conserve electricity during World War I. After the war was over, daylight saving time was no longer national law and became a local option. Between 1918 and today, Kentucky observed daylight saving time for 75 years according to timeanddate.com. For a while, cities across Kentucky were inconsistent, with some observing the time change and others not. But starting in 1970, time and date AS has tracked observance of daylight saving time in Kentucky every year. Over the years, research have tried to tie your body getting an hour less of sleep that night to a variety of issues, including an increase in car crashes and health problems such as heart attacks and stroke. Joe Girth, Daylight saving time is confusing cows and killing people. We must stop the madness. In 2019, Kentucky Republican Representatives Bart Rowland of Tompkinsville and Brandon Reed of Hodgenville pre-filed a bill to do away with resetting clocks every six months and instead using daylight saving time all year. 
To do so, however, requires authorization by the federal government. Under federal law, states are allowed not to observe daylight saving time, with Arizona and Hawaii being the lone states to do so. States are not allowed to stay on daylight saving time throughout the year. Didn't Sunshine Protection Act end daylight saving time? The Sunshine Protection Act would permanently extend daylight saving time from eight months of the year to the full 12 months. The bill was first introduced in January 2021 and reintroduced by Senator Marco Rubio, Republican Florida, and seven other bipartisan members of Congress in March of 2022. Is it daylight savings time, daylight savings time with an apostrophe S, or daylight saving time? It's daylight saving time. No hyphen, no apostrophe, and no extra S in the phrase. Also, no capitalization. However, for people searching the term online, these results come up. Daylight saving time, daylight savings, and daylight savings time. Why spring forward, fall back? According to Dictionary.com, daylight saving, commonly referred to as daylight savings, is begun in the spring by setting clocks one hour ahead. They are then set one hour back in the fall. People often use the simple monomic spring forward, fall back, to remember to set clocks forward one all, one hour. Example from 2 a.m. to 3 a.m. in the spring and backward one hour. Example from 2 a.m. to 1 a.m. in the fall. Who controls daylight saving time? The U.S. Department of Transportation oversees the nation's time zones and the uniform observance of daylight saving time, according to transportation.gov. The oversight of time zones was designed was assigned to the DOT to help keep track of transportation. The DOT manages daylight saving time and cites energy reduction and reduced crime as reasons for the time change. Which states don't observe daylight saving time? Arizona and Hawaii do not recognize DST. There's also no need to change the clocks in Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, American Samoa, Guam, and the Northern Marianas. Which states don't want to observe daylight saving time? More than 30 states are considering legislation related to the practice of changing clocks twice a year. And seven states, Alabama, Arkansas, Nevada, Oregon, Tennessee, Washington, and Florida have already approved the legislation. However, these states still need the okay from Congress to enact the change. What are the pros of daylight saving time? If permanent daylight saving time takes effect, the biggest pro by far would be no sleep disruption. No need to change your clock twice a year before, at, or after 2 a.m. on Sunday in the fall and spring. Other perks would be more time during the day to be out and about, and experts say it's better for your health. No sleep disruption. No preparing for bed or waking up habits to change. 
contributing are Jenny Began, USA Today Network Florida, Mike Snyder and Claire Mulroy, USA Today, and Emma Austin of the Courier Journal. We have time for an opinion article, and um, this one is from Joseph Girth of the Louisville Courier Journal. Mitch McConnell's radical Supreme Court endangers women, and he says nothing. It's about time the great and powerful Oz steps from behind the curtain and tells us what he thinks and how he's going to fix it. A couple of weeks ago, U.S. District Judge Danny Reeves of Kentucky struck down the federal law that prohibits those under domestic violence protection orders from possessing guns. It's not hyperbole to suggest that women will die because of this. According to the Giverts Law Center to Prevent Gun Violence, an abused woman is five times more likely to be murdered if her abuser has access to a gun. According to the Federal Department of Justice, three women and one man are murdered every day by their partners in 70% to 80% of domestic partner murders. The man had previously abused the woman. Reeves may not have had much of an option. The case involved Sherman Combs of Cynthiana, Kentucky, who had a domestic order placed against him last June and was ordered not to stalk, harass, or threaten an intimate partner. According to Reeves's ruling, Combs went out a few days later and purchased a 357 Magnum handgun. Reeves allowed to stand a charge that Combs lied to the firearms dealer when he claimed he wasn't prohibited from owning a gun. But the key charge, being a prohibited person in possession of a firearm, was dismissed. The ruling followed a Supreme Court ruling last June that radically changed the way federal courts are instructed to consider whether gun laws are constitutional. No longer can they consider if those laws are justifiable or serve a public purpose, like protecting lives. Under the Gruen decision, judges can only consider whether there is a historical tradition that supports those laws. And so, because the first domestic violence order laws weren't passed until the 1970s, and the first laws prohibiting people who stand accused of domestic violence didn't come about until the 1990s, Reeves ruled just as the nation's Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled the same day. Done laws that try to protect women who are the victims of domestic violence are unconstitutional. Josh Douglas, a law professor at the University of Kentucky, said no court has ever instituted the new higher standard of finding a historical analog to justify gun laws. There's no other constitutional right that has that kind of analysis, he said. One person we haven't heard talk about the U.S. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is arguably more responsible for this ridiculous Supreme Court ruling than any other human being, including the six members of the U.S. Supreme Court who put their names to this abomination. 
You undoubtedly remember how McConnell changed the dynamics on the court from 2016 to 2020 when he first refused to consider Barack Obama's appointment of Merrick Garland to replace the late Justice Antonin Scalia, and then raced through the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett, Donald Trump's nominee to the court, as he raced toward electoral defeat. Last week, I asked McConnell's spokesman, Robert Sturr, what McConnell thought of Reeves' ruling, whether or not it was the groundwork for good public policy, and whether he thinks the Supreme Court should reconsider the Gruen case, which created this dangerous situation. McConnell, the great Oz, refused to emerge from behind the curtain. Sturr did not respond. There is no reason to believe McConnell even cares. He was the guy who blocked the reauthorization of the Federal Violence Against Women Act and even refused to take up for his own wife when Trump made racist comments about her. Combs lawyer, Thomas Lyons, acknowledged Reeves' ruling could increase the risk of harm for domestic violence victims, but told Courier-Journal reporter Andy Wolfson that protection of constitutional rights often has societal costs. Those societal costs fall squarely on the shoulders of Mitch McConnell, who is primarily responsible for creating a radical Supreme Court that is more interested in protecting guns than people. And yet, the great and powerful Oz continues to hide behind the curtain and say nothing. Joseph Girth can be reached at 502-582-4702 or by email at jgerth at couriergjournal.com. This concludes excerpts from the Courier Journal for Monday, February 20th. Your reader has been Vicki Turpiano. Please stay tuned for continued programming on Radio I.